Thank you, Brenda, very much indeed. Well, won't you please keep your Bibles open at uh, Joshua 14, and I'm going to pray. Well, part of what it means, Father, for us to be made in your image is that we can understand your words. We are speaking people, you are a speaking God. We listen to one another, and therefore we can listen to you. So Lord, give us listening ears, and more important than that, listening hearts this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to take the gospel to China. Uh, He went out there at the early age of 20 or perhaps 21, and when he went, he went as a single man. Uh, He learned the language, he embraced uh, Chinese culture and Chinese dress. He, uh, as you know, he grew pigtails, didn't he? And he began to preach the gospel and to translate the Bible. Uh, He was specifically concerned to move his work inland from the coastal regions to central China and in due course he founded the China Inland Mission. Um, It was obviously a tremendous pioneering work. But during that time Hudson Taylor was often lonely. Uh, He was frequently misunderstood. He was regularly abused and he was often discouraged. And at one particular point, uh, a low point, he says that he was trying to translate the Bible and he was working through the Gospel of Mark. And he came to that place in Mark 11, verse 22, where Jesus says to his disciples, have faith in God. And Hudson Taylor says he felt that he just couldn't do that. Now, that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Because Hudson Taylor was, by any standards, an exceptionally faithful man. But at that point, he was very discouraged and he was very down. So he began to look at his Greek uh, New Testament rather more carefully in order to try and understand precisely what Jesus meant. And he saw that the verb there translated to have means literally to have something in your hand uh, or to hold on to it, to have. And the word translated faith could equally well be translated faithfulness depending on context. And uh, in Mark's Gospel, the context in chapter 11 is all about trusting God to move mountains. And Hudson Taylor felt that the Holy Spirit was saying to him that have faith in God means hold on to the faithfulness of God. In other words, he realised that Jesus was not saying stir yourselves up to feel more confident. No, what he means is don't give up on God's promises because God's promises are the expression of his character. Now that was a huge moment for Hudson Taylor and uh, at the end of his life 
when he was reflecting on the great work that God did through him, he said, you know, there seem to me to be three stages in the work of God. Stage one, impossible. Stage two, difficult. Stage three, done. Impossible, difficult, done. Now that is the testimony of a man who held on to the faithfulness of God. And Hudson Taylor, I think, could equally well have been writing about the book of Joshua. Uh, We've seen, haven't we, that it's the record of God's conquest of the promised land and the gift of his inheritance to his chosen people, Israel. And humanly speaking, the conquest certainly went through those three stages. Impossible. Difficult. Done. And I want to suggest that in any work for God, we will never, we'll never get beyond the first stage unless we learn to see it from God's perspective and we hold on to the faithfulness of God. That was actually the secret of this very lively 85-year-old Caleb, who's right at the heart of our passage this morning. So, before we actually look at Caleb, which we're going to do, we need to start by fixing our eyes on the Lord who is faithful. So, just two main headings this morning, and you can follow where we're going in the bulletin that you were given when you came in. The first thing we need to learn this morning is God's faithfulness fulfills his promises. God's faithfulness fulfills his promises. Now last week uh, in chapter 10 we saw how Joshua was um, able to drive a wedge right through the middle of Canaan in order to separate the Canaanites in the north of the country from the Canaanites in the south. And then he was able to conquer those two areas in separate campaigns. Just turn back with me for a moment, if you will, to the end of chapter 10. Uh, You'll see that the campaign in the south is summarised for us in verse 42. That's page 162. Uh, There is a bit of page turning this morning, so make sure your fingers are warm. Uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse 42. All these kings and their lands, Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Okay? Then in chapter 11, the spotlight turns to the northern conquest and we're given a summary of that campaign in chapter 11, verse 18, page 163. These are very striking words, actually, so make sure you've got your nose on them. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hevites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself 
who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Those are very striking words, aren't they? And we've spoken about the significance of that before. Then in chapters 12 and 13, we're given a list of kings who've been defeated. But those chapters also tell us that the conquest was not yet complete. There are still large areas of the land that need to be taken over. But now, this morning, as we come to chapter 14, enough has been accomplished for the focus in the book to shift from battle and conquest to the distribution of land. So if you think about it like this, in terms of Hudson Taylor's model, the impossible has already been partially completed. And from the middle of uh, chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 22, there is a long description of the different areas that were allocated to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you read those chapters carefully, uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that you've suddenly moved from a Bible study into a rather complicated geography lesson. And we can't help wondering why on earth there is so much detail in the text and what on earth we're to make of it. Now, of course, it is true that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but it also has to be said that not all scripture has the same purpose. So you'll be pleased to know that we're not going to be spending the next few Sunday mornings wading through each minute land allocation to each particular tribe. But I think it is good to ask this morning, well, why is there so much detail in the text? Well, surely the answer is that in many areas of the land, what had seemed to be impossibly difficult at the beginning had actually now happened. The campaign had been very lengthy, very demanding, but for those men who had fought their way through those campaigns in the north and in the south, now there is a celebration of a hard-won victory. The victory has been costly. It's it's cost these men uh, the lives of their relatives, maybe fathers, certainly sons, friends, their comrades in arms. And after such an intense campaign, these men can picture the detail of the land and all of those city fortresses that they'd conquered. Why? Because they'd been there. They'd seen them. So you see, as God parcels up the land and begins to distribute it, they know for sure that each tribe, each clan, each family and each individual really matters to God. Because if you like, chapters 14 through to 19 are rather like a property transfer deed. They are in effect the legal document that supports the claim of the various family groups 
to the inheritance given to them by the faithful, promise-keeping God. So what I want you to see is that the big idea in these chapters is that the land belongs to the Lord and he gives it to his people as his tenants. Uh, The details of their inheritance are concrete evidence that each family is included in God's covenant promises. God has made a perfect provision for each and every one, giving them territory that they can call their own. So I want to say to you this morning that the detail in these chapters is a lasting monument to the fact that God can be trusted to fulfil all the promises he's made. Um, In chapter 13, there's the distribution on the east side of the River Jordan. And then chapters 14 to 19 are actually one unit. Uh, I say that because it begins in chapter 14 with Caleb receiving his inheritance and then it ends in chapter 19 with Joshua receiving his inheritance and in between all the various tribes receive their allocation. Now in our passage this morning the uh, the process of allocation is described in verses 1 to 5 and it's very striking uh, to see that Eliezer the priest is involved Um, I don't know what you did when you last bought a house, but I would uh, wager that you probably didn't get the bishop along to help you do the deal. But here, in this extraordinary series of land transactions, the priest is involved. And that's because this isn't just a civil ceremony or a civil transaction. This is a spiritual thing. This is God keeping his promises to his people. Now I say all of this because I want you to realise that we've reached a really major turning point in the book. God has given them the land and now God is distributing the land to the people. The first tribe to receive its allocation is the tribe of Judah from whom of course the Lord Jesus will come and as soon as Judah is mentioned Caleb comes into the spotlight. He's the focus of the rest of the chapter. So, if the major theme here is God's faithful fulfilment of his promise, well, very clearly connected to that is our second point this morning, which is that uh, Caleb's faithfulness secures his inheritance. Caleb's faithfulness secures his inheritance. Now you've got to hold both of those things together in your mind. God's faithfulness will fulfil his promises. But Caleb's faithfulness is what ensures that he enters into the fullness of those promises. That's what secures the inheritance for him. Now, Caleb is actually one of the uh, greatest examples of godly old age in the Bible. 
And I wonder if you notice that the, the same thing is said about him three times in the chapter. Uh, you'll find it first in verse 8, where Caleb himself says, I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. That phrase is then repeated again in verse 9, where we're told that Moses said to Caleb, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. And it's there again in the summary verse, verse 14 at the end of the chapter. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. So can we all see that here is a man of great spiritual maturity and wisdom? This is an example of what it looks like to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And in his opening remark to Joshua, um, Caleb turns the clock back 45 years to when he was just 40 years of age. In verse 6, he says to Joshua, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. So if we're going to learn about Caleb's wholehearted discipleship, we need to know what actually did happen back at Kadesh Barnea 45 years before. So turn back with me, please, to Numbers chapter 13 on page 109. Numbers chapter 13, page 109. Now the big thing that we learn about Joshua in these uh, chapters in Numbers is how realistic he was both about the promises of God and about the difficulty of the task facing them. So as we come to Numbers 13, it's just one year after the exodus from Egypt. Um, Israel has made astonishing progress and has arrived at Kadesh Barnea, which is right on the edge of the promised land. But if you know the story you'll also remember that it's been a year of great discontent, uh, lots of grumbling, lots of unbelief. And although God has done lots of amazing things amongst Israel, many people are saying, let's go back to Egypt. Now, just as an aside, um, that's what often happens when God is really at work. In church life, you discover that God is usually most at work when there is the most grumbling. And that's because the devil is trying to frustrate what is going on. So the twelve spies were sent to explore Canaan, and you'll notice in verse 1 that that was God's initiative. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses... Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, 
Caleb, son of Jephunneh. So there he is, one of the twelve spies sent to report on the situation in Canaan and they're away for about six weeks. And when they come back, there is a, a majority report signed by ten of the twelve and uh, you'll find that in verse 27 in the right-hand column. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. So we came, we saw, and then the third verb in, is, is there in verse 31. We can't. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. In other words, what they're saying is the land is wonderful, but the people are powerful. We can't do it. It's impossible. I think it would be very interesting to know, wouldn't it, how many works of God have stalled at precisely that point. And if you and I were to ask the ten spies, why on earth did you bring that negative report? I guess they would probably say something like this, well, we were only being realistic. But they weren't being realistic from God's perspective. Because the true realist in the story is Caleb because he and Joshua brought a good report. Now, they of course saw exactly the same challenges as the other ten. They also saw the giants. But their wholehearted commitment was to the Lord. They had a vision of God's future. And conquering the land, even though it seemed humanly impossible, was something that God had already promised. So can you see that the ten, they look at the giants alongside a very small God. But look at the contrast in verse 30. <clears throat> then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. It's a great contrast, isn't it? Here is a man who has a great God and giants who can be overcome. And there are the men who see all the difficulties and who absolutely refuse to trust God's faithfulness. So Caleb, you see, is showing us what it means to follow God wholeheartedly. Because if God has promised something, we trust him to do it. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it, because we're trusting God. Now that's not just spiritual vision, that is spiritual realism. Because you see, it reckons on the promises of God, even though humanly speaking the situation looks impossibly difficult. 
There's a marvellous New Testament illustration of this. You don't need to turn to it, but it's in the letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 13 of that letter, God makes a great promise. Chapter 13, verse 5. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's actually a quotation from Deuteronomy 31. And Hebrews takes that promise of God and applies it to New Testament Christians. Because in the next verse, Hebrews says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So you see, someone who wholeheartedly follows the Lord takes the verdict of God in his promises rather than the verdict of common sense and all the difficulties. And that was how Caleb lived his earthly life. That is what it means to follow God wholeheartedly. So I think Caleb's spiritual realism is very, very striking. But notice also, will you, his humility. Uh, Humility is perhaps not something we would uh, automatically associate with a great warrior, but it's very clearly there in the passages that talk about his life. Caleb reminds Joshua that on the day the ten spies brought their negative report, it made the heart of the people melt. But he says, I followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Now what did that look like? Well, come back again to Numbers with me, and this time to chapter 14 and verse 3 on page 110. Uh, That is the top of the page. Numbers 14, verse 3, page 110. Now, here are the people who are believing the majority report signed by the ten spies. And they're basically saying, this is a disaster, we ought to go back. Verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now Moses and Aaron are appalled by that, but now look at verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. I wonder if you can see the humility of Caleb in those verses. The Lord will lead us into the land. You see, faith is always humble 
faith is always dependent on God. Faith is always saying it's not about my greatness or my ability. We know we can't do it. But God has promised. So faith, you see, recognises that every work for God, whatever it is, depends on a deep personal relationship with God. And here is the man following the Lord wholeheartedly and walking in the light of his word, obeying his commands, living by his priorities and enjoying the Lord's grace and favour. Now when we know that only the Lord can accomplish his purposes, well, we will submit to his will, we will pray, and we will wait for the Lord to act. You know, there are so many promises of God that we can experience in this world, as well, of course, as the promises that speak about our eternal future. But, you know, we so quickly decide that somehow God's promises don't actually apply to my situation. Or that we have to have our bright ideas rather than to actually have God's will working in our lives. And so, you see, what we tend to do is we write our own agendas And then we expect God to rubber stamp those. But God wears down the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And visionary leadership is always humble leadership. It doesn't blow its own trumpet. It doesn't say, we're going to take the land. It's not believing that there's anything in us that will accomplish God's purposes except the obedience that gives ourselves into his hands and lets him use our lives as channels of his grace and his truth. So Caleb is a man who wholly followed the Lord. And it's demonstrated by his realism, it's demonstrated by his humility, and it's demonstrated by his faith. He says, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land. Now pause on that, because there's a very important lesson there. You see, what Caleb is saying is that where there is no faith, there will always be fear. And fear always wants to go back to Egypt. And when we're afraid, it's because we don't really believe in God's commitment to his promises and we don't really trust in his sovereignty over all situations. And as you know, in this case, uh, God's judgment fell on them. Uh, They turned their backs, didn't they, on the promised land. They turned in their hearts towards Egypt. And God said, okay, that whole generation will not enter the land except 
for the two faithful men who believe my promises. Look with me at uh, chapter 14, verse 24, which is at the bottom of the left-hand column. Verse 24. These are great words, actually. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, isn't that marvellous? Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And verse 30, right-hand column, Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. You see, there's a very, very important spiritual principle here. It's no good me saying, as so many Christians do, you know what, I'm not experiencing what I thought God was going to give me. It's no good saying that if the truth is that I'm not actually trusting God to do it. See, as soon as I turn my back on God and uh, argue with him and start saying, well, you know, I think I had better go back to Egypt. Well, I'm never going to experience all that the Lord has planned for me because he only gives it to those who trust him wholeheartedly. And wholehearted following is trusting the God who is faithful. How do you know you're trusting him? Well, you know you're trusting him when you start to obey him. If we don't obey, it's because we don't really trust. And daily, detailed obedience is the way we follow the Lord wholeheartedly. It's also the way that we express our love for him, isn't it? Do you remember the Lord Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Well, this is the vision that God gave to Joshua and Caleb. And God fulfilled it as he worked out his gracious purposes, preserving them through the 45 years that they waited to receive the promise. They waited 45 years to receive that promise. And God preserved them in their faith and he kept them trusting his word all those years. So Caleb did enter the land. He received his inheritance because of his realism, because of his humility, because of his faith, And lastly, because of his vigour. So in the last few moments, won't you come back with me please to Joshua 14 on page 165, where we can see Caleb making this tremendous claim for his inheritance. Joshua 14, page 165, verse 10. Now then, just as the Lord promised, (coughs) he's kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today 
as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now, of course, the lesson is that spiritual vigour like that comes from wholehearted following. That's the point. That's why Hebrews chapter 3 says, don't harden your heart. In other words, don't divide your heart and give some of it to God and some of it to the world. Don't have ambitions that are more important in your life than God's promises. That's the lesson we learn from Caleb. And the fact that Caleb at 85 is still as strong as he was 45 years before means that he can say verse 12. Can we all see verse 12? This is an 85-year-old. Now, give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. So Caleb is still trusting God, still expecting God to work it out for him. And of course, God did. So look to the right-hand column, chapter 15, verse 13. Verse 13, in accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron... Caleb drove out three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahiman and Talmai, descendants of Anak. Very interesting, isn't it? You see, at 85, Caleb isn't in frail care, is he? You know, he gets rid of three giants. In the following verses, he captures another city, And he gives it to his nephew who marries his daughter. And in the verses after that, there's a marvellous picture of Caleb faithfully passing on everything that God has given to him to the next generation. What an extraordinary man. What a great example for us to follow. Can I say that if we want to be like Caleb at 85 we probably need to start now. See, the big enemy in our Christian discipleship and in so much of the Western church, the big enemy is half-heartedness. You see, we're only inclined to really follow the Lord when it's convenient, when it suits us. And so sometimes we lack vigour, we lack perseverance because our hearts are divided. That's the truth. But Caleb could say that he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And the only reason that he could do that is because he'd learned that the life of faith is claiming the promises of God from the God who is faithful. Let me say that again. The life of faith is claiming 
the promises of God from the God who is faithful. And Caleb did that day by day by day for 45 years. And he was still doing it at 85. Well, friends, Caleb's God is our God. And all that he was to Caleb, he is to you and me in the person of the Lord Jesus. Actually, in a sense, Caleb points us forward to Jesus. Because do you remember, as we prayed earlier this morning, uh, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down on the throne of God. So when you feel half-hearted, when you feel weary, apathetic, lacking in vigour, consider him, because he suffered, but he trusted God's promises. And Jesus proved God to be perfectly faithful. And by doing that, of course, he opened the door to our eternal inheritance. So our vigour, friends, depends on our faith in Jesus. When Hudson Taylor was uh, battling in his calling in China, God showed him that having faith means holding on to the God who is faithful. Hudson Taylor did that and the rest of his life proved it to be true. And both Caleb and Hudson Taylor and countless others would say to all of us in this room this morning that this is our big challenge today. Are we going to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, claiming the promises of the God who is faithful and doing that even when the situation looks humanly impossible? Are we going to do that? That's the question. Now I'm going to leave you to answer that question for yourself this week. But the way you answer it will determine whether the verdict on the challenges in your personal life will be impossible, impossible, difficult, or done. Let's pray. Grant us, loving Heavenly Father, an undivided heart that we might fear your name, that we might believe your promises, that we might obey your commands and live for your praise and glory. Grant us hearts to praise you. Grant us hearts that are submissive that are lowly, that are contrite. Indeed, renew our hearts this morning and fill them with faith and love 
that we may live and work for your praise and glory both this week and all our days until that inheritance in heaven is fully ours because of your great faithfulness. O Lord, we ask this most fervently in Jesus' name.